welcome to another episode of the Talk About AI podcast, a podcast about AI where we go beyond the buzzwords. The guest of this episode is David Feldell. He's the lead data scientist at the e-commerce company BabyShop Group. In this episode, we discuss why it's more important to focus on and predict the customer lifetime value rather than sales. David explains how BabyShop works with product recommendations. We also talk about how he and his team go about when selecting which models to use for different use cases. These and many more topics are covered in this episode. And just a small disclaimer, this episode was recorded right before summer last year, so it was some time ago. For more information about the podcast, please visit talkaboutai.com. My name is Patrick Liu Tran, and I'm the host of this podcast. Once again, warm, warm welcome to the Talk About AI podcast. Welcome to the Talk About AI podcast, David Feldell. Hi, thank you for having me. So how are you today? Uh, I'm very well, thank you. Despite the corona situation, I feel uh, pretty well. Uh, how are you? I'm also quite uh, well, thanks. You're kind of the first person I've met for at least a couple of weeks. Yeah, it's the same here. I've been sitting inside with my girlfriend for the last one and a half weeks. So yeah, let's see how this uh, new social situation will end up. Yeah, you know, uh, I told you right before that uh, I lived 50 meters from your previous uh, headquarters and now you moved kind of like 400, 500 meters, right? Yeah. So it's still very, very close. I can almost see my home from here. Yeah, that's perfect for you. Yeah. So, so I thought uh, if there is one episode I'm going to record during this crisis in person, <laughs> it's this one. Yeah, not that much uh, risk. Yeah, exactly. So you're the data science and analytics lead here at BabyShop Group. How did you end up here? What's your background? Well, uh, I didn't think that I would end up here maybe five, six years ago because then I was working in finance and I have been working in finance for five years within the derivative space in various positions before I ended up at Baby Shop. So I had a friend working here actually and he said that, uh, well, Baby Shop is really looking to advance in the data and analytics field. So I thought it was a super interesting opportunity moving from portfolio compression to working with data that is more relatable. Uh, so that's how I ended up here. And it's been a blast the last two years working with data with retail and uh, baby shop especially. Cool. And your educational background, are you kind of a data scientist by training or are you kind of more a business type of person? Yeah, uh, I have a master in finance and haven't studied any uh, programming uh, whatsoever. Uh, I have learned everything myself really on uh, different courses online, but but mainly when I've been working, I have had different um, have I've had different projects requiring programming. So that's how I learned and just like GitHub, YouTube, uh, different courses online. You know the drill, right? Cool. Uh, do you have any good courses online that you could recommend to the listeners? Yeah, obviously the deep learning specialization, it's like the classic one, but I, I, I always... By, by Andrew Ng. Yeah, exactly. At uh, Coursera. Yeah, it's at Coursera. Uh, so th that one is really good. Uh, quite, I would say it's not math heavy, but it has, it, you need to, to have some mathematical understanding to get it if you want to... Uh, 
learn it on a, like a more practical level. I, I also think that the Fast AI course was a really good introduction how stuff works because uh, Howard, who is uh, uh, having that course, I think he explains like the basic concepts in a really good way so that anyone understands really. So those are good like beginner courses, I would say, to get into the AI field. Good, good recommendations. And um, then after five years in finance, you took the opportunity to join Baby Shop. And uh, what was your first position here? Uh, so I, in the beginning, I mainly worked with like data and analytics. It wasn't really AI focused. It was quite like programming Python heavy stuff I did. It was like all different type of analytics uh, that with at that point, we didn't look that much of big data analytics. And we didn't do that much of like automation of uh, uh, the analytical results that we got. So I started working with that. And it was first after like six months or something like that, we, we started focusing more and more on data science and having more uh, statistical method, how to come up with stuff uh, and automizing stuff uh, further on with, with uh, machine learning as well. Uh, but I've always been interested in that. But it takes a while getting into a company that hasn't before that not focused that much on like big data and starting directly working with like advanced machine learning models. First of all, I think you need a few months in like any company just looking at the data and understanding what you can see. And also maybe we at in the beginning we didn't really have the possibility to work with machine learning models because we haven't that big of a uh, uh, tech team. Uh, but now we have an uh, uh, incredible tech team as well, an incredible uh, uh, amount of data that we can work with structured in a perfect way. So I'm really happy uh, now with the situation. And actually, it gives us also the possibility to work with machine learning and AI and advanced analytics. Cool. And we will get back to the data situation in a while. But uh, how long time ago was this when you came here and started up everything? Uh, it was two years ago I started uh, here. So it seems like you have had quite a rapid journey. Yeah, it's been rapid and I'm like that kind of person. I like when things go quick and I like changes and also the organization, especially all the way from like management, the board down to middle management really like or, or, or rather aren't afraid of changes and doing things in a new way if it makes the process better and we can come up with like new alternatives or new solutions. So obviously th that is, uh, without that, it's not possible to do any rapid change in an in, in organization. Yeah, totally agree. It's very important to have the buy-in from other stakeholders outside the data science team. Yeah, uh, I, I totally agree, you, you, especially when you work on like cross-functional projects uh, across different departments and so on. You, you really need to anchor everything within the, the organization before you can get any results out, out of your findings or your models. A model doesn't really do anything itself. It, it usually needs uh, uh, some participation from other departments as well. Yeah, you kind of at least need to get access to the data from the business side. You need yeah. to have someone using your predictions results yeah. to make actual decisions and so on. Yeah, and also I think that you 
many of the times when you put the trust in an algorithm, you need you you need to align it maybe with new business KPIs or a new business focus, whether it's a recommendation field or a sorting. Uh, the stuff you promote, it needs to go all the, it needs to go all the way from like buying to marketing back to data science. It has to be like uh, so it has to be connected between all the different uh, persons or, or departments. Yeah, I totally agree. And uh, just to give some background to the listeners, I mean, I've been a very frequent customer of yours because I've got a son who is almost ten months old now. Uh, um, but for the other uh, listeners who haven't been a customer of yours, what is Baby Shop Group? Yeah, so first of all, thank you for being a customer and congratulations. Thanks. Uh, so uh, Baby Shop Group uh, was founded in 2006 by Marcus and Lynn Tageson. Marcus is uh, still the CEO of the company and uh, Lynn is the uh, head of HR, and both are, are, are still in, in the board. So this is, they founded it in 2006. I don't think they had like the expectations of the company to being like uh, uh, such a big business. But right now we have an annual uh, revenue of roughly 1 billion CEC. Uh, and it's mainly e-commerce, but we have 11 stores in uh, Norway and two stores in Sweden as well. And around 300 uh, employees working at Baby Shop at the moment. And it's actually three different sites that we work with. Uh, it started just as Baby Shop, which is like... I think Baby Shop maybe isn't the correct name for it if you want to describe it. It's actually clothes for anyone between like zero and 15 years old. Um, And uh, it's fairly high like fashion level on the stuff that we sell on Baby Shop. Then we have also Likmir that we acquired in 2017. And that is more like heavy stuff uh, such as strollers and uh, also toys, uh, car seats. Beds for babies. Yeah, beds for babies. Uh, (laughs) I guess you have bought that from us. Yeah, Uh, and like a kitchen for babies and so on. Yeah, exactly. All those like, uh, yeah, all those toys or or more functional stuff really we're selling at Likme, I would say. And then we also have Alex and Alexa, which is like super high fashion level clothing uh, mainly focus on where we mainly focus on the international market and it's also acquired in uh, uh, 2017 or 16 I think uh, and uh, they have their office in uh, London so it's mainly a British company uh, selling uh, internationally but it's uh, like Gucci belts for kids right cool and um I've actually met both uh, Marcus and Lynn Tages on the founders, as you said, and uh, they are very impressive people. So I'm not surprised that it has uh, been a successful journey. Yeah, uh, I think so as well. Very like visionary mindset and open to all kind of changes, and they, and it's really fun working with them. That's super important for me as well. Yeah, I can imagine that they are quite interested in data science and AI. Yeah, they're actually uh, really involved in, in what we do, not pointing fingers uh, and telling us exa- 
exactly what to do, but they're always interested in seeing our findings and our how our algorithms are performing. So it's really fun to see like the main stakeholders in the company being interested in uh, what the team does. Yeah, I can imagine that they are quite uh, supportive of your work. And before we dig into the topic of AI, I always ask, how do you define artificial intelligence? For me, it's uh, just a field within uh, computer science that solves cognitive problems that traditionally has been similar to human intelligence. But how I define AI within this business is that it helps us do predictions at scale and helps us uh, do the right decisions and find patterns that maybe the human can't find and nonlinear relationships that will help us spot trends and help us uh, move the business in uh, different directions that maybe a human couldn't do. And related to the definition of AI, what do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions about AI nowadays, both in general, but also related to your business in particular? So I think the business or retail in particular maybe thinks it's really hard working with AI. It doesn't have to be that hard. I don't think if you work on stuff that can uh, make your business more efficient and taking like the most easy implemented products first and working with them, it doesn't have to be that hard. For example, when we started working with this, we just did some, I, rem- I remember meeting you then, and we discussed a little bit about what we were doing. And um, we had just been starting like clustering the emails. And by that, I mean, we didn't send the same email to everyone. We started clustering based on if they are a trend customer or if they are maybe buying more sporty stuff or if they are more interested in toys. So we didn't send the same email. We just started uh, clustering the customers into different groups with uh, like a classic Caymans. And uh, then we could segment our emails better. It wasn't that hard. And I think anyone can learn how to do that if they have the interest. And it can solve like these like fundamental business problems that you have that can move your business into becoming more personalized, which I think is super important working with retail today. Some other misconceptions is that, I guess everyone says this, that AI is like, will solve all the problems in the world. Like it won't do now and it won't do anytime soon. And I'm not that afraid of AI in the sense that I'm, I don't think that a lot of people in the near future will lose their jobs due to AI. I just think it might make the world a little bit a uh, better place. For me, I think it's amazing to see all the AI products in the products I use, all the recommendation engines, all the smart stuff in the apps that can help me navigate better, you name it. For me, that's, I think it's just help us and make the lives easier for almost anyone. By making things more personalized. Uh, it doesn't have to be personalized. It just uh, can, uh, can make it uh, easier for me to make decisions. We're having so we're making so many decisions every day. I'm so tired of decisions. And you know, when you 
And I think like stuff maybe should be even more personalized. Yep. <laughs> uh, for example, looking at Netflix, can they please personalize more? I'm tired of finding like 50 million movies. I want just going into Netflix and uh, getting one recommendation. And this is what you should watch. Like back to regular TV when you put on a channel and you don't have to decide because uh, the next uh, hour I go into YouTube and it's a lot of recommendations. I love YouTube's uh, recommendation engine, but it's still maybe too many alternatives to choose from. Yeah, I think it, it can help you improve our lives, but also when it comes to the things that we don't see, like when it comes to transportation, when it comes to healthcare, all that stuff will just improve your life quality. So I think we, we should uh, give AI even more love. But um, if you want AI to kind of automate more decisions in our everyday life, don't you think that should be more personalized as well? Or do you see where you can make more automated yeah. decisions that is not personalized? Oh, that's a, that's a good question. Obviously, you, you want it to become personalized, but like, I mean, how... Uh, uh, the buses are scheduled in Stockholm can uh, obviously be helped by AI to schedule them better and like transportation planning in general, for example, it doesn't have to be personalized. Okay, I see uh, your point. So basically you, you can automate a lot of decisions and some of them are for individuals and some of them are for kind of uh, the society as a whole. Yeah, uh, exactly. And uh, I think it, that's where we will like the next few years, maybe we will just see things improve. Maybe we won't notice it because we never notice improvements. And just looking at papers and stuff as well, before they were like super revolutionary, but they're becoming like more evolutionary. In terms of academic research on yeah, AI. Yeah, exactly. So we don't see like these dramatic improvements in algorithms like, oh, this is a whole... Uh, uh, this is uh, we don't we don't see as often like these dramatic improvements where something is like mind blowing anymore, I, or maybe I don't look enough in the, in the research papers. But like five six years back when I read those papers, it's like it seems to be dramatic improvements all the time, and we maybe don't see that much anymore. Yeah, I totally agree. I think in kind of 2012, with all the deep learning uh, findings that you had back then, uh, you kind of opened up a new field. Yeah. And uh, when a field is new, it's quite easy to kind of improve, make up something that is better than what already exists. Yeah, exactly. I, I agree. And and why I think people were afraid of AI, because they thought that trend will continue. You will you will make everything better, 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 better. But uh, also like uh, the coronavirus, the, the curve flattens out, right? So we, we don't know that yet. Yeah, well, we don't know that yet. I know you are more scared than me. Yeah. But hopefully it will flatten out. But uh, it usually it flattens out and isn't like this exponential improvement in uh, uh, in any field and maybe not in AI either. We will see like just more people using AI. Yeah. Good. And uh, during these two years that you have been here, you said early on you were kind of alone in your work, more or less. And uh, how many are you today in your team? So at the moment, we are five people in the team. It's me being the data science lead and also working hands-on as a data scientist. 
then we have another data scientist, uh, data engineer, and uh, more of a analyst uh, advancing into more of the data science stuff. So, uh, but currently working more of a, a, as an analyst. And uh, then we got always one person as support from the tech team deploying the stuff in the front end or helping us with uh, some of the back end stuff as well. So mainly five people in the team at the moment. And uh, how would you describe the difference between being a data scientist, a data engineer and an analyst? Yeah, that's a good question because just like one month ago, we worked, everyone was working with the whole pipeline as a data scientist. And uh, that means that you are a data engineer as well. Uh, how I define a data engineer is that it builds the data pipelines from our data warehouse into uh, Google Cloud Platform that we use for our models. So building those pipelines, also setting up like Docker images, creating pipelines in Kubeflow and uh, handling some of the output data as well. That for me is a data engineer role. A data scientist role is more about working with the algorithms and the feature engineering and doing analysis. And the analyst role is usually not that involved in uh, machine learning models. It's mainly looking at data, feature engineering, coming up with ideas and working on some simpler models. So it sounds like the analyst in your case has more of a domain knowledge, more business knowledge. Yeah, I would say so. That That's a, a good way of putting it. Uh, and um, working really close with, like, for example, the ads team on getting more information about how our ads are performing and putting more of an advanced analytical angle on uh, the data and looking at it in like a different way and maybe combining different data sources. Cool. And then you mentioned that you have kind of one full stack type of person. Yeah, I would say that's me and uh, one other person being more full stack person. But I've been trying to find a lot of full stack data scientists, being able to both uh, putting up like pipelines, data engineering, and also working with algorithms. It's quite hard to find those type of people. And I don't think necessarily a mathematician, for example, that we have in our team uh, that is really good at building models is the best person to really set up a data pipeline. Uh, and uh, now when we work with projects, usually it's one data scientist and a person from tech uh, in the beginning of the project uh, talking broadly about what the, what uh, possible solutions there is, uh, both with the data we have, but also from a tech point of view, what is like realistic there. So, for example, is it possible to set up this kind of API with this uh, response time and then tech can answer those questions? Uh, and then the data scientist can start researching different type of uh, solutions to solve this problem, really. And now when we have started working a little bit with a data engineer as well, it gives us the possibility to also get a data engineer into that mix as well. So everyone can start a project together and work separately on the different tasks. 
and work where they are specialized. So that's kind of cool that you have every competency that is needed uh, to go from starting up a project until putting it into production within your team. I think that's great, a great way of uh, working. And for me, um, I really like when we can put stuff in production fast. And by that, I don't mean put like the full solution in productions, production real quick, but it's really good for me trying to structure what projects we should work on and what the roadmap should look like uh, to get something quick and see if it's actually is working. And by that, I mean, for example, put up a recommendation field in an email and see if that is working. It doesn't have to be a perfect pipeline, doesn't have to work perfectly, but you can still get a sense if something is working. So that's also where we usually start, just trying and see, does, it, does this even make sense? So we don't end up in working on a project for six months and, well, that didn't solve any business problem at all. Uh, so that's why we also want to have... Um, the tech person evolved really early so they almost immediately can start working on putting it into production and for many like simple models you can have something to try in like two weeks it doesn't have to be like a full pipeline but just having like a real quick a b test of whether it's working get a sense if it makes sense i think that's very reasonable I've seen a lot of uh, data science and AI projects that companies invest a lot of time and resources into. And then when they go into actually trying to put it into production and use it in real life, they don't really find a connection and a real value there. No, and I don't, in our business, we don't get that much additional value, hyperparameter tuning for a couple of weeks and finding and tweaking and changing everything to get the best, best, most optimal result uh, because we haven't done that much yet so it's an open field for us to just advance and for me usually it's better to have two really good algorithms that is solving like real business problems than having one exceptional uh, algorithm i think maybe in a few years we will end up working more with like super sophisticated stuff but at the moment we we want to get stuff up and running and see like uh, business results and also we we have to deliver that. It's like uh, we aren't a data science team that can just build uh, fun algorithms. It's always ends up in like, how can we create business value? Yeah. And as you mentioned earlier on, we met quite early and started to discuss the AI and data science work here at Baby Shop. Yeah. What has happened since then? Well, we have been working with a lot of different type of uh, personalization algorithms. Uh, as I talked uh, about earlier, cl clustering in emails, uh, but also recommendation. And uh, that has been personalized recommendation based on what you have purchased. Uh, we have uh, been doing a lot of session predictions uh, doing predictions whether someone will purchase from us based on their session behavior, what their next uh, product that they will view uh, most likely is. We have been working also with product recommendations on site, and by that I mean like similar products. I've uh, been working a lot with similar images, similar descriptions then. Also predictive CLV, 
which we're trying to make a core part of our business and business KPIs, especially in some areas within the business uh, where you really can measure how your marketing actions uh, affects the CLV and um, what type of CLV customers that you get. And by CLV, I mean customer lifetime value. So that is how much we will earn from a customer or how much they will purchase from us within the next year. Uh, also, churn prediction. Um, we started working on quite early. And it, that is like, how likely is it that this customer will purchase from us again within the next year? Or rather, how likely is it that they will churn, that they want to come back to us? Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, that's some of the projects we've been working on. But then we have done a lot of like, just regular advanced analytics as well. It sounds like you have been able to do a lot in this relatively short time with a team of five people. Yeah, it, they have been performing really well. It's really fun working with them. So I'm a really happy team lead having this team. I can imagine. And could we just dig into a couple of these use cases and talk about them in more detail? Yeah, sure. So let's start with some of the most common use cases that you see out there outside Baby Shop. I think churn prediction is a typical use case. And I think this big interest into churn prediction comes from the fact that uh, often it's cheaper to kind of retain a customer than to acquire a new customer, right? Yeah. Is that also the case here? Yeah, I would say so, that it is cheaper. And it's also from a CLV point of view, it is really good for future CLV or for loyalty if you get the customer to purchase from you again. But at the same time, we are in a business where it is a lot of gifting. For example, grandparents and so on purchasing a gift or uh, a friend purchasing a gift to uh, uh, another friend's newborn baby. Uh, so that is a little bit tricky for us when it comes to churn, because like how most management teams think about churn is that, okay, you have a churning customer, send them a, send them a discount code, but uh, that uh, kid won't have a birthday for another nine months. So it really won't matter, no matter how many uh, discounts code you send to them. And uh, it's, it's a risk that you start sending discounts codes just because you have a prediction of that and that maybe doesn't fit the business model all the time so we are trying to figure out still how really to activate churning customers and the different type of churning customers and i would say that is one of the projects where we have put the least effort uh, because we haven't really figured out how to work with it yet but uh, you said that you define a churning customer as someone who hasn't purchased from you in one year. Yeah, a churning customer that is someone that hasn't purchased from us within one year, yes. And how did you come up with that definition? Because I know when people discuss churn, this is one of the main struggles. Not uh, the data, not kind of uh, the business side, but uh, kind of defining what is churn. For us, it was quite easy. Uh, we acquired uh, Lake Mir in 2017, so we couldn't do it on two-year data, and you need one at least one-year data to get all the seasonality. For example, you have Black Week, you have Christmas, 
and uh, then one year was very suitable for us. So if it wasn't that much discussion how long period we should look at when it comes to churn because we wanted to get as much business data as possible. To me, it, it uh, makes sense at least to have one year of data when you're in like uh, uh, the retail space. But uh, otherwise, yeah, I, I think also one year can sometimes be a little bit too short because people maybe buy a stroller from us now just because they don't buy anything for the next year. Does it mean that they have shown not sure? Um, two years would also be interesting to look at. Uh, we might do that when we get more data. So your definition basically comes from a combination of access to the data, but also at least one year because that makes business sense. Yeah, exactly. So what type of data are you using in these predictions of churn? In the churn model that we haven't touched for a while, it's only order data and customer data. So like demographic information and... Uh, but mainly what they have purchased like in different um, cohorts like last three months, last six months, last 12 months and then feature engineering around that like anything that you come up with. Uh, uh, we had one guy working on it for several months and worked a lot with the feature engineering because in the churn prediction case, what we, ha- what we have been giving the most of the result was, was actually the feature engineering for that project because we got so much information about why a customer churn and we saw patterns that we haven't seen before. And that is for me, when it comes to churn, just as important to feed into the business and looking at it on a big data level, feeding that into the business and how people can work differently has been uh, even more important than the action model that, uh, as I mentioned before, haven't really used that much yet. So when you say the information, you mean the insights that the business has uh, received based on the findings of your project? Yeah, exactly. So uh, you can, for example, see that now I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but it could be something like if someone purchases this specific category they are very likely to churn. Well, if you can feed that uh, information to a buying department, that everyone that purchases this product, they will churn. They won't come back. Well, they don't maybe don't buy that product anymore. For the marketing team, if you give them the same information, well, maybe we shouldn't pay the same customer acquisition cost for that customer because they are very likely to churn. Yep. So all this information about what products, uh, what categories, what brands, and so on, give a lot of information to the other teams in in, in the um, uh, organization as well. Yeah, very interesting. And I think uh, that's kind of how it is in many cases, that the models per se, at least early stage, isn't where you get the most value, but rather the insights that you get from building the models, right? Yeah, and I hope we can come up with more ideas how to actually use the churn prediction and automate that. We have all the possibilities to set up automated CRM uh, pipelines for that. But we also need to come up with really good ideas how to actually activate the customer. It doesn't matter how much you know a customer will churn if you don't know what to do about it. Yeah. And what would be your dream scenario in like three, four years from now? How would you be working with the churn and churn predictions? Um, I think you have to classify the customer's 
differently. Maybe not look exactly at churn, but rather look at what would be the best action to activate this customer no matter if it will churn or not by having all the touch points that the customer had. So for example, it might be sending an email to a customer that will increase, and then I think it's more about looking at CLV. How can we increase the CLV for this customer? Maybe that is sending an offer to that customer. Maybe that is sending them an email about news. Maybe it's just getting them onto the site. Uh, So having more of an approach where you can increase the CLV by a certain action and then triggering that action for that specific customer. It might be showing an ad, sending an email. And for me, it doesn't really matter then what the churn percentage is, but rather what is the best action for this customer to increase the the predicted CLV. That's a, a very nice perspective on it. So you're talking about not being interested in who will stop being our customers, but rather at every point in time, what is the best action we can do to activate them? Yeah, and I think that fits like a non-contractual business uh, in a better way than a churn prediction. For a contractual business, it is obviously the worst thing that can happen to them on the customer uh, if a customer ends their subscription. For us, it's more about uh, getting an additional order. Yeah. getting a high value order so it's a little bit different perspective on it and i think a lot of like the research about uh, uh, churn and models when you talk to people it's mostly in uh, contractual businesses that really get a lot of, out of it i don't know but that's at least my feeling yeah i totally agree such as gyms yeah exactly um, um, software as a service subscriptions yeah phone operators um, newspapers and so on yeah yeah totally agree and then since you mentioned customer lifetime value prediction quite a lot, yeah. let's talk about that. And you said that you use a one-year horizon to define the CLV. Yes. Can you explain more how you measure the CLV? So we measure the CLV on how much we get in actual profit from the customer uh, after all costs, really, uh, on uh, a one-year horizon. Including uh, acquisition cost of the customer, No, so this is only the profit we get from the customer, and uh, uh, but it guides us a lot how much customer acquisition cost we can have in different channels and campaigns uh, based on what our CLV is for that, or our average CLV is for that specific campaign for customers coming in through that campaign. And why have you selected a one-year horizon? It's also the same reason uh, as for the churn. Uh, We really need to get the seasonality uh, into uh, the model. Otherwise, it's uh, of course, you can model it in in other ways. But uh, for us, it's uh, really important to see uh, a full year perspective. Since we have these different uh, periods when we have uh, way more sales than other periods. Yeah, so at least one year to capture all the seasonality during a year, but uh, you don't have longer since you have limited access to data. Yeah. Cool. And how have you been using the insights that you get from the CLV predictions? For us, it's uh, really important to understand, especially when it comes to like 
marketing spend or when it comes to campaigns, how do we change the CLV? So, for example, if you place an order and before you had a predicted CLV of uh, 600 and then you suddenly, after you have made this purchase, you get a predicted CLV for the next year of 1,000. Well, we have both earned from that order and we will, you have also a higher predicted CLV. That's obviously a really good uh, campaign for us if that would uh, be the same for all people uh, coming in through that channel or, or uh, being a part of that email campaign, for example. So it's actually a lot about how our actions, what effects it has on both today, but also about, uh, also the future. Because you get, can get a lot of sales today, but you don't get any additional future value from the actions you have made. Then they shouldn't be as worth as some actions that will produce a lot of long-term CLV that creates a lot of loyalty to the business. Um, so I think if you look at only what happens today and not the future, you will miss a lot of the insights. Yeah, so this kind of relates to if you, for example, give out discount codes to activate people to um, purchase things today. Yeah, That can kind of uh, make them buy things that they would have purchased in the future now instead. Yeah, and also if you give someone a discount code, obviously they will uh, shop from us with a lower margin. And that also might affect their at least predicted future CLV. Yeah. So even if you get that value today, is that will that change their shopping behavior so that they become less profitable customers since you get them into buying the wrong stuff? Uh, it might be those kind type of questions that you have to ask yourself every time you uh, purchase a customer through a marketing channel or you do any uh, marketing activities. And do you also use these CLV predictions to determine how much you will pay for different ads? Yes, obviously it's super important to us to both know the, uh, the value today, but also know the future value when we decide upon how much we can pay for a customer. It's uh, just as important as the sale or more important than the sale we get today. Yeah. So with uh, good CLV predictions, you can uh, start to move away from kind of targeting everyone on a platform based on some simple filters to actually target the ones that are most profitable, right? Yeah, because there are so many different types of customers where you have to look at it on different angles. Let's say you are selling cars, for example, and then you come in because most people look at only sales. I think that's where a lot of companies are at or maybe gross profit. But let's say you're selling cars and you have two different people. You have one person buying a Volvo for 200,000 and that person is living in Stockholm and then you have another person maybe buying equipment for the, their Ferrari from uh, Middle East and they're also purchasing for 200,000. Looking at sales, they will both look the same, these customers, but if you have a predictive CLV model, you will see such a huge difference, especially if you have also higher margin on, on the Ferrari products like you maybe only earn 10,000 SEEK on a Swedish customer, but on the Ferrari customers from Middle East, you maybe earn a gross profit of 40,000, but their predictive CLV, since you got them into the business, is another 500,000. Yeah. So uh, 
the difference maybe is 50 times as uh, big for the Ferrari customers, but only looking at sales, they will have exactly the same numbers in your system. Yeah. And uh, I know in the e-commerce space, a lot of actors are struggling with kind of the customer acquisition and how much should we pay for different uh, customers, right? Yeah, I think that's uh, a struggle for everyone, knowing how much you can how much you can pay for a customer if you can look at it that way. Yeah, and with the help of these CLV models, you can guide your decisions a lot more, right? Yeah, so um, that gives us a lot of insight when when this making those decisions. And um, what types of models have you used, both for the churn prediction case, but also in the CLV prediction case? So uh, in the churn prediction case, we used a random forest model to predict the churn. And in the CLV case, we used a neural network based. It was a wide and deep model. And how did you end up with these models? We usually pick the model that gives the best results and makes the most sense, both from a technical point of view but also that it should be easy deployable, easy maintainable, and also that it gives good results. Uh, but we have a, so where we think it fits the best, and uh, then we ended up with those models. How was the process initially? Because uh, I mean, random forest and neural networks, uh, very popular models, right? But yeah. also quite different. So how do you go about when you start to approach a business case in terms of selecting different models? Do you start with simple ones or do you start from a more theoretical perspective and kind of this makes more sense theoretically? Uh, so first of all, we create a, a baseline with a really simple model just to see what to expect. Kind of a linear regression. Yeah, a linear regression or something similar with only the most relevant features so that you can get an understanding of what might be hard in the prediction, what features that might be relevant. Sometimes it might be easy to use a random forest and... Uh, just get a feature importance to see what to work with, wh wh what actually makes sense and start looking there when it comes to the feature engineering, but get a baseline that you can uh, that you can work with. And after that, we usually, it depends a little, bit on, a little bit on who the person is that is working on the project. Some people might not have that specific knowledge within, for example, neural networks and maybe aren't as confident working with that. Then they pick another model and then we make sure in the beginning or, or when I and I who am responsible for allocating different projects to different people try to get a sense of uh, if that person has the possibility to work with that kind of model before they start working on the project. But usually we have more and more like some good baseline models that we can try out and work with to see what works best, if it is like booster trees or if it is uh, uh, neural networks or if it is um, something else that, that fits the, the, the purpose really and, and gives us good accuracy. Uh, but this is mainly like for tabular data when it comes to like uh, images or product recommendations, it's usually a lot more research 
and finding a good solution and before you just start trying different models because that usually takes too much time. Yeah. So kind of for structured tabular data, you start with a simple model to create a baseline and then you incrementally improve on that. Yeah, most of the times I would say. Yeah, and then as you say, when it comes to other areas such as product recommendations based on images and so on, and then you have quite big research fields on yeah. that. Yeah. And um, could we dig a bit into these uh, product recommendations then based on the images? Yeah, sure. So when I'm shopping on your website, in this case, the baby shop website, mm. then when I click into a, a product, I see that you in that product page have um, related products, right? Yeah. Is that what you do with machine learning? Yeah. So uh, there we use machine learning to find similar images. We have tried actually many different models, but what has... Uh, improved the most in uh, click-through rate and so on has actually been when we can present something that that is visually similar to the product that uh, the person view. And that's quite interesting, right? Because uh, sometimes, I mean, the related products can be defined very differently in different e-commerce stores. Yeah. So sometimes if I'm purchasing some rain boots, yeah. then uh, based on your approach, what I'm hearing, you kind of recommend other boots, right? Yeah, and I can say it's not one model fits the business. I think we have a lot to do here because there are different type of visitors, right? Yeah. And maybe this type of model suits us best that you show a rain, other rain boots when, it's, um, when they are uh, viewing a rain boot since we have pretty determined shoppers and they know what they want. Yeah, but all shoppers aren't that determined. Some are more like uh, uh, want to explore. They are like explorers on the website. They they are just interested in shopping. Yeah. And maybe those people should have a different recommendation field, or should we should have multiple recommendations field, or it should switch recommendation field depending on what customer it is. So there's still a lot of uh, for us to do in this area. Uh, but for most of our shoppers, they tend to shop like that. And that's how I shop as well. But I'm 100% certain that's not how, how every person shops. Some people are just on a shopping spree and, and just want to find something interesting. And then you should probably have something that is uh, more um, uh, next click based in terms of recommendations. Yeah, but... I mean, another alternative to recommend something that looks similar and is in the same category in terms of rain boots could be to recommend a complementary product such as raincoat and so on, right? Yeah, exactly. That that uh, should also work and we have tried that uh, as well, but haven't had uh, the same uh, success there. Yeah. Uh, but as I said before, I think for some people, maybe that should be the solution or maybe depending on what they have in their cart, uh, depending yeah. on uh, what product they actually view. Should it be the same for all brands? Should it be the same for all categories? I'm sure not. Uh, but we are, we are working our way towards uh, having more advanced uh, recommendations fields there with more advanced logic. Uh, but it's really fun to work with it because yeah. you learn so much about the customer. Like, 
okay, when you get the data later on, for example, okay, this brand, they, they really liked product recommendations. And by, when I say this brand, I mean these kind of customers that buys these brands, uh, but the other people aren't that interested in the product recommendations. So that's a part working with machine learning as well, really evaluating the the results and by the results i mean the behavior that uh, your customer have and um, i mean when when you look at the image similarity do you want the images to be very similar or is there a threshold i mean uh, uh, if i'm looking at blue boots mm. uh, with dots do mm. do you want to recommend me other blue boots with dots or do you want to recommend me blue uh, boots with other patterns uh yeah, that's a really good uh, question. At the moment, we don't have any filter that they shouldn't be too close. Uh, we're using uh, Annoy, which is a good library to find similar vectors. So we just take the most similar ones and put it in the recommendations with some additional filters, obviously, yeah. uh, after that, uh, so that it, they aren't too, they aren't, they aren't putting up totally wrong. Um, recommendations, so we have some additional safety filters, but uh, that's the approach we have now, but also it, it kind of makes sense, I think, to show other blue rainbows with dots, because they might have a different price point and they might be on discount, so why yeah. wouldn't you want to see uh, uh, blue rainbows with uh, white dots if uh, they are on discount, I think it totally makes sense yep. because it's it, you can see it as just alternatives. This you can also buy. It depends on what purpose your product recommendations have, and uh, as I said before, they can have several purposes. Yeah, totally agree. In the future, we can hopefully uh, predict better during the session what type of customer it is. Uh, is it the exploratory customer or is it uh, uh, really determined customers that know what they want and uh, give them the best experience based on that. And I'm just thinking about uh, when I shopped the last time at Lekmer yeah. um, and uh, it was toys for my son. And some of the toys, I mean the pictures aren't really standardized in oh. terms of how they look like. So within clothing maybe you have more standardized uh, uh, format of the images. You have uh, the clothes on a white background or something. But when it comes to toys, you can have an image of toys with a child playing. Yeah. So uh, how, how does that affect your ability to kind of use the image similarity? Yeah, we have tried some other solutions for these categories where it's a little bit tricky. Uh, for example, we just tried using the embeddings from our regular product recommendation model because you have the item embeddings there and look up the uh, I, uh, the similarity for those vectors instead since maybe you can't use images for for the reasons that you say uh, but now we have a, a like a mixed solution for toys where we look a little bit at at uh, both images and also at uh, uh, the other embeddings and we have some additional filters so that helps us but uh, yeah it's it's a little bit different for this type of products but you can put different filters on these recommendations so that they make sense yeah and when you talk about these embeddings what data are you using for these embeddings we have another product recommendation engine that is for the personalized recommendations 
So for example, if you have purchased this, you might also be what would what do we expect you to purchase the next time? Okay. So there we have all the items in our catalog as embeddings since they go into that model and that we can use for uh, this purpose. Okay, cool. So you kind of combine different models depending on the data that you have available. Yeah. So we try to store like embeddings that we that might be interesting for other purposes in uh, uh, storage so you can just play around with it in another model. Cool. And for all of these uh, projects that we have now been talking about, the churn prediction, but also the CLV and, and the product recommendation, what has kind of been the impact in the business? Is that something you have been able to measure? Yeah, you can measure like click-through rate and so on on product recommendation and conversion rate. Can you mention some type of improvement numbers? I think it's uh, th the biggest impact is that it gives us uh, uh, a lot of flexibility. If you have product recommendations from a third-party engine, you don't have any flexibility whatsoever. Uh, now we have full flexibility of... Uh, promoting the products that we want, base it around our current assortment or stock levels on the like the, the business focus that we have. It gives us a lot of flexibility and we can also increase click-through rate a lot on, on uh, uh, product recommendations by creating our own engine for it. So we get a lot of flexibility in everything that you custom make for your business. And I think that gives... Uh, uh, creates a lot of potential for us to uh, increase the sales on site, but also increase other measures and also give us the possibility to increase the CLV by putting in all the different angles into our models. Just not put the model up on site and don't care about it anymore, but connecting it to other business KPIs. And have you been able to actually measure through doing some testing the actual impact of your new recommendations, for example? The yeah. click-through rate and yeah, so on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we can see huge improvements in uh, click-through rate. And um, I also think when it, we, because we are working on other product recommendations as well, and I think this is uh, might give a good understanding about personalization in general because we have another product recommendation and that is looking at, okay, if you have viewed these five products, what are you most likely to purchase? Or what are you most likely to visit next? So you have visited... So based on if you have visited these five products, what are you most likely to visit next? All right. So um, in most cases in a business, if you are a visual merchandiser on a site, what will you promote? Yeah, you will promote the top selling items. That, that's at least what I would do. Maybe have, you have some uh, uh, feeling about what is working and what's not. So you might do some changes there, but in general, the, the top selling item. But in reality, it's maybe only 0.3% of the customer actually clicking one of the top 10 most selling products as the next visit. And that's all, always where you end up when you do it manually, when you don't personalize. Yeah. Uh, if you personalize, if you have a model for it, or even if you if you would always recommend the product that someone, the last product someone visited, 
that's 20% of the time maybe they will they will visit that product. So even that is more relevant than the top selling items that you usually put on site or in emails. If you go to the next level and do a personalized model about uh, from it uh, based on the sequence that they have visited products, you might get 25-30% um, accuracy on the product that they will visit. And the more products you look at, and if you look at uh, the, yeah, the mean average precision on, like for example, 10 products, obviously the model will outperform enormously both like the last visited products as well as the top sellers. So, so I think that really shows the potential about personalizing and not focusing on top selling products all the time because it has to be personalized. It's The top selling products are usually at least in like a, a retail business is only a small part of what people are interested in. Yeah. And um, I just uh, yesterday purchased some uh, medicines online for the allergies pollen allergies yeah and um, now when you talk about it i remember that what i was faced with was these top seller products yeah and that's i don't think that's uh, sometimes it should be the top sellers but if the data tells you that but uh, in these times all of the top sellers are out <laughs> of stock yes <laughs> it's like yeah, that's uh, even worse i i've been trying to google some like uh, healthcare stuff as well and they're all out of stock on uh, google shopping as well yeah. What approach did you have to recommend products before you build your own recommendation engine? Yeah, we had a third party engine and it was the same thing with Sylvie. We had a third party provider of Sylvie data. Uh, so we always try to have like a headless approach to all the solutions that we create or purchase uh, and uh, doing as much as possible ourselves. And by that, I mean that if we create something, it should fit. So very easily into the rest of our systems and it should be possible to customize everything to fit our business needs. And that's not only for us, it's for the whole business. We try to become as, as we call it at least, uh, as headless as possible in all the solutions that we create so that we can move between different solutions. It should fit everywhere. And... Um you mentioned this uh, increased flexibility of uh, having your own uh, solutions built. Can you elaborate a bit more into that? Does that involve, for example, your ability to include stock levels and so on to push for uh, products that have been selling very slowly? Yeah, that's one alternative. And, and also, no one knows, for example, the seasonality better than we do. And I think my end goal... Uh, or not my end goal, but uh, where I would uh, like to see us is that if we have, for example, if we are pushing uh, raincoats in a campaign because it started uh, raining outside yesterday and just became uh, spring, we want that to also be possible to uh, affect the product recommendations So product recommendations in email or how we purchase customers uh, in ad networks so it has to all fit together and work together with the, the business goals that we have and those can be very short term and uh, that's uh, something that we try to build in to our solutions that if we have some kind of business goal how can that be implemented in both product recommendations in CLV, in ads in campaigns and so on 
and the third-party solution that you had before you developed your own recommendation engine and LTV model, did you get insights into that model, how it worked? No, you generally don't get any insights about how a model works. No. So kind of all of these insights that you said earlier on has been very valuable to your business that you don't get when you buy it from a third-party provider. Yes, exactly. I think it uh, that for us has been the the really important, as I, I mentioned previously, you get also so much insights by doing this yourself. And you get to understand the customer, what they click on on the site. Otherwise, it's you don't really dig into that much what product recommendations people click at or why the customer lifetime value becomes that or if it becomes negative. You have really to dig into the data and getting the possibility to both dig into the data but also build a model around it. Uh, that's, uh, for me, it's uh, pretty valuable. It's kind of like if you have this black box uh, third-party solution then you get a lot of recommendations, right? That are quite critical, LTV and uh, and product recommendations and so on. Yeah. And uh, then you act on it, but you don't understand where it comes from. No, exactly. Uh, and that can be frustrating sometimes. And dangerous many yeah. times. <laughs> yeah. And because you be, as you say, like the CLV is the core of the business. How much will you earn from the customers in one year? So you really... Even if your model would be worse than <laughs> a third-party provider, it might still sometimes be worth having it yourself so you understand the, the input and the output. Yeah, you feel more in control. Yeah, I like being in control. <laughs> Are your models performing worse or better than the third-party solutions? I would say usually better, uh, but I don't want to throw anyone under the bus. Or Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> And uh, a lot of times when you talk about e-commerce versus physical stores, you end up talking about the amount of data that you're able to collect uh, through e-commerce. Yeah. All of the sessions data. So basically where people click, what they look at, for how long, which devices and so on. Yeah. And uh, that is often argued to be a big competitive advantage for e-commerce stores because they get to know the customers a lot better. Are you using a lot of sessions data? Yeah, we do that for some prediction models and also for, as I said before, product recommendation based on what products they have visited. I'm not sure if it is a competitive advantage. Uh, I'm pretty sure that a person that is in a store that can actually talk to a person can give better product recommendations than any of my models. Yeah. And uh, do you agree with this description that uh, there is so much uh, session state available and that it's so useful? Or yeah, 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 sure. I 100% I agree on that. It gives a lot of uh, insights on what is relevant right now. I believe someone it's easier for someone to go online and search for bikes, for example, on our page than going into a store. So we get way more data that maybe isn't, obviously we have way lower conversion rate than a, a physical store, uh, but we, due to that, we get way more visitors and get more insights on trends and uh, what is going on right now. And you have a lot lower cost. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if we don't uh, create more machine learning models, I suppose. 
No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and now we have been talking about just a few of the projects that you have uh, worked with uh, within this relatively short time period. So how long has it taken uh, from start to finish, uh, more or less, or at least finish in the sense put into production for an average project? Yeah, that's a good question. It's a lot of maintenance after you have something. So as I said before, it's a lot of digging into the insights. So even if we have finished a project, it's still a lot to do when it comes to analyzing the, the result of it. But putting a model into production, if it's like more advanced model, then it's it's some research of one, two weeks how to come up with a good solution together with the uh, the tech team and uh, then you need to start working on the model and getting the or getting the data from data warehouse into good format that might take a week and um, getting a baseline so and then you have to start working with the model uh, doing the algorithmic work and after that you have to build a pipeline and then you have to put it into production uh, so that can take anywhere from, if it's a small model, two weeks. If it's a big model, three months. But then you have the first version of it, and then it's iterating with that version. But as I said before, we rarely start building a model for three months without having a proof of concept of that model first. That would, I would say, almost never happen. We would need to get then a proof of concept. For example, if you have the product recommendations, Maybe just getting the data, let or because if it's personalized product recommendations in an email, let's say that. All right, then maybe you can just get some baseline data and uh, uh, just run it once of the predictions and import it into the CRM system and see. Okay, does the customer like this? Even if you haven't had any product recommendations in email before. It must increase click-through rate on the emails somewhat. Otherwise, it's not worth spending three months getting the perfect model. So th that's how we usually work. So we're talking about weeks and uh, up to like a couple of months, but not years. Uh, no, absolutely not. Uh, we, we, we don't have the people working on a project for several years, even though I believe that the CLV project, for example, we will continue to work with that and fine tune, add more. Improve and maintain. Yeah, improve and maintain. And uh, it's a lot of work outside building just the model itself. Uh, so for example, building dashboards of the output data, building better logs of how the model is performing of the input data and all that. So the, the it's a never-ending work with a model, but you can also leave it as it is if it is a stable model, but sometimes you also want to improve it. Yeah, and then we kind of get into the area of uh, model retraining and so on when you talk about maintaining a model over time. So yeah. a lot of people, I think, uh, especially from the business side, think that once you have uh, trained a model, you can just leave it there and yeah. it will kind of update itself and learn in real time and so on. Yeah. But that's rarely the case, right? Yeah, that is rarely the case. Like for images, you don't have really to retrain it that often. It's just feeding in the new images and finding the image similarity. 
uh, or uh, description similarity if you will look at that. Uh, but for a CLV model, you have like a lot of, of uh, time-based data that is like, for example, features about how much people purchased the last week. If you train the model during Black Week and then uh, don't retrain it, that feature will be so off. And also your data will drift a lot during the, the next few months. So you have to retrain it uh, daily to depending on the purpose of the model. Do you do this retraining manually or automatically? Yeah, we retrain them automatically with... Uh, uh, pipeline set up in Kubeflow on on uh, most of the time on the schedule, uh, and I would like to have for some models that might be costly to retrain a lot. Maybe you want to retrain it only when the data is drifting or uh, you get a lot of changes in the data. We're not there yet. Uh, that's uh, kind of like a <laughs> dream for me to have a really good setup how to retrain models. But now we do it maybe weekly or uh, daily depending on the model or sometimes monthly but we work a lot with seasonality in this business so uh, sometimes you have to think just about like okay what data is going into the model yeah okay is it seasonal data that is depending on what happened last week okay if you have a product recommendation model you want to retrain the model pretty uh, with a with a short uh, uh, interval because if sp- a lot of people looked at bikes last week and that should be recommended in the personal recommendation model and then the next week everyone is at school and no one is purchasing bikes for their kids anymore well the model needs to be retrained to not uh, recommend bikes to everyone yeah and uh, you mentioned shifts in the data and that's a space that I really, really love. <laughs> I know that it's a strange area for someone to love, but could you explain to the listeners what you mean with shifts in the data and why that kind of uh, creates a need to retrain a model? Uh, yeah, uh, I will try. Uh, but uh, for example, if you want to measure the CLV, and I think it's so we, we are going to predict how much a customer will purchase in the future. And uh, let's say you have um, you're looking at the last week, as I mentioned previously, about how much that is like uh, the feature in the model that will determine how much they will purchase again in the future. You look at the last week, how much did they purchase then? Like on average, during Christmas time, maybe most people will have purchased from us for 200 krona per person or the mean for that column or that feature is maybe 200. And uh, based on that, you do a prediction for the next year. After two months, when in February, when it might be a little bit not as intense shopping, maybe the average for that column is 100. If you don't retrain the model, you will uh, basically um, do predictions on, uh, with a model based on data that was on 200 and not on 100. That is the current situation. So then you have to retrain it to get up-to-date data. Yeah, so that kind of relates back to one of the fundamental assumptions in machine learning, that uh, the data you trained your model on is representative for the real-world data, right? Yeah. If that assumption doesn't hold 
a lot of the things in machine learning breaks, right? Yeah, it surely do. Because uh, what you do is simply finding patterns in the data. Yeah. And if data changes, then the patterns are no longer valid. Yeah. So I think that's one of the biggest uh, challenges in practice when you have a lot of machine learning models uh, in production. And uh, I mean, take other industries as an example. Let's say banking and the house loans. Um, the banks compete quite fiercely uh, to win the customers over for uh, mortgages and so on. And if someone just uh, creates a big campaign or if the central uh, bank decreases the interest rate, I mean, the dynamics of the market shifts a lot. Yeah, it's it's like basing the, the credit uh, default risk on 2006 data when it's 2009. Exactly. Mm. I, I mean, that was a very good example. <laughs> <laughs> and when you do that type of thing, when you have an invalid model in a sense, at least for the in-production data that you have now, then the performance most likely will go down over time, right? Yeah, exactly. And we try to do the best we can to do some with the, the models that don't retrain as often. Uh, we are trying to do new predictions on new test sets to see if, for example, the accuracy is uh, is decreasing and then we have to retrain the model. We don't have any automated process for that, but that would also be something to look at if, if if the model is predicting worse then it should automatically retrain yeah but sometimes you don't really have the luxury of getting the ground truth the correct prediction result within oh. a short time period right oh, no it, it might be hard yeah for example again banking if the customer defaults or not might take several years right yeah. <laughs> And related to this, then we kind of uh, get into the area of uh, data and validation of data, right? Yeah. So the good thing with e-commerce is more data than a physical store. But at the same time, you have more data to take care of. Yeah. So when you are faced with all of this data that is uh, being collected on a daily basis, how do you ensure that it's of high quality and uh, valid and so on for, uh, for being used in automated decision making? Yeah, that's a good question. I think many companies are struggling with that. We are doing that as well to some uh, extent, but um, we're having a really good uh, data warehouse team and also a BI team uh, that are using the data for reporting for other purposes. So we have some legacy tables that where we base all our other business decisions on that we are usually feeding into the models as well. So we rarely start with like raw data. We usually start with data that um, someone else also is using within the whole business. We have a few tables that is critical in our models, but is critical in the rest of the business as well. And uh, therefore we can make sure, not to 100%, but to 99% that uh, the, <laughs> 99.9%, I should say, that the data is correct. Some other times when we get our external data sources, it will be trickier and we will be more strict what data we put into the model and do more cleaning ourselves. Yeah. But the thing is, when you say that the data is correct, you mean that the information in the actual uh, data cell, for example, is correct, right? Yeah, exactly. But uh, if you have shifts and so on, yeah, 
then the data is still correct, but it's not valid for your model in a sense. Yeah, that that, that is also correct. So, but uh, we have a fairly, uh, we don't have that much data. So we are struggling with that we can't retrain the model as often as we uh, as we should. Yeah. So we can usually retrain them with uh, a good uh, schedule. So it won't be affected by drifting the data. Yeah, so that's a quite good countermeasure to regularly update the model. Yeah. So now almost one and a half, two years into the work with data science and AI, what has taken the most time and what has been kind of the main challenge in your work? For me, as a, a non-programmer, getting well, getting good structure for how to build pipelines... Uh, and getting everything automated in a good way, I think was pretty hard <laughs> for me personally. And I think everyone in the team involved uh, has been struggling a little bit with that. But now we have worked out the process how we should work with every single project uh, in terms of like pipelines and data engineering and so on. So how we feed the data into the model, screen it, and uh, how it should retrain and how to schedule it and everything. So that has taken a lot of time, but it seems also like it has been for AI and machine learning. It has been one of those years when people have focused a lot on that. So I'm very happy for that, that I didn't start working with this like five years ago, because then you really had to do build every pipeline yourself and schedule it in a much trickier way. Like the solution we have now with the Kubeflow, I think it's really easy to work with and schedule everything. And uh, I think in general, uh, like we will see even more of those easy accessible pipeline tools in the next year or so that will make it possible to focus more on analysis and building the algorithms rather than uh, uh, focusing so much on, on like pure yeah, software engineering. Yeah, and that goes into the area of MLOps, right? Yeah, exactly. So one of the new uh, big buzzwords in our area yeah <laughs> so maybe they will be out of business in one year now <laughs> but uh, yeah i think that that's that's necessary so uh, maybe because i'm see i'm trying always uh, to get someone that can do everything and try to uh, teach everyone in the team or get the team to teach me how to do things properly and then we can share the knowledge how to actually build a whole pipeline. But uh, I think it makes sense, especially maybe more in larger uh, organizations to that everyone is a specialist on their specific field. And I think the, the MLOps would fit perfectly into like, you have one data engineer in a project, you have one... Uh, uh, data scientist and one MLOps, and then you have someone from tech doing like more of the deployment, the, uh, yeah, the, or the front end stuff. So yeah. we usually end up with an API, but how do we get that on site? Yeah, and I think that uh, kind of the struggle you describe is very rooted in the education system when it comes to AI and machine learning in general, right? Yeah, unfortunately, it seems like. I, maybe I've seen now that there are some data engineering courses or ML, not MLOps, not there yet. It will take a few years, but everyone has to teach uh, teach it themselves. Or um, so it everyone becomes so like valuable if they know 
those kind of envelope stuff because you have to learn it at the actual job. Yeah. So uh, th- that I would uh, wish that you could get someone uh, straight out of uh, university with the knowledge of doing MLOps, but usually you have to hire so senior people, but hopefully we'll get there. Yeah, and a lot of times, I mean, MLOps type of things are not uh, kind of uh, requiring an education necessarily. You see a lot of very talented people in that space with zero academic education. But they are the yeah. best, right? Yeah, 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 sure. Uh, when it comes to that, you don't need to have an education as long as you know what to do and get stuff up and running in the best way. Yeah, it, it's uh, not less complex, but it's kind of a different type of complexity than uh, algorithms and models in terms of mathematics and so on, right? Yeah. And now we're uh, heading towards the end of this episode. Who are two guests that you would like me to invite to this podcast and why? Um, I don't have any specific names, but uh, two companies I look at a lot when that are sharing a lot of their knowledge as well, how to think within retail on their blogs are uh, Farfetch that is like super data science heavy. And it would be really interesting to hear more about how they think, even though they share some of the knowledge on their blog as well as uh, Stitch Fix, which uh, I don't know if you have heard about them, but they are sending like um, your personalized clothes every every month. So you get like uh, a package of uh, five items and they have uh, only used machine learning to uh, find out what you like. And also when it comes to how they create the stuff and so on, all their different private labels, they also use machine learning. Uh, it would really be interesting to hear how they work with data and how they think about data. I, I, uh, yeah, Very, very good recommendations. I'll look into that and see what I can do, but they are not based here in Sweden. <laughs> no, I think uh, Stitch Fix is uh, British and uh, Farfetch, maybe Portuguese. Yeah, but, exactly. Uh, yeah. Thank you very much for joining this podcast episode. Thank you for having me. It's always interesting to just uh, talk a little bit about what we do and it gives uh, some uh, insights about uh, (laughs) just during this conversation. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Talk About AI podcast. If you have any feedback on how the podcast can be improved or suggestions for future speakers, please don't hesitate to reach out. The contact info can be found on talkaboutai.com. The next episode will be released in a couple of weeks. It's difficult to say exactly when due to the COVID-19 situation. Until then, have a nice time and stay safe. <laughs>